0: Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It's Thursday, December the 10th. Tom Tilly here, joined by Jan Fran. Hey, Jan.
1: Hello, Tom. How are you going this morning?
0: Yeah, really good. Today on the show, we're going to brief you on the Port Arthur Massacre movie controversy.
1: Yeah, it's been 24 years since Australia's deadliest day of gun violence. Wow, that's a, that's a while. I remember that day very clearly. I was in high school. A lot of Tasmanians, though, they still they don't want the movie to go ahead. Is that right? It's already in production, too.
2: Yeah. If they need to tell a story about Port Arthur, it should be focused on the victims and the families and the survivors, not on the perpetrator.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting to hear the reasons for their opposition. It really makes you think it's quite a complex issue. And um, we'll get to that in just a moment. First, let's get into the big news of the day.
1: An Albury teenager who allegedly holds extreme right-wing views is facing terror charges.
0: Yeah, the AFP Assistant Commissioner, Scott Lee, says they made the decision to arrest the 18-year-old after his behaviour allegedly escalated online. He has been uh, accessing extreme right-wing material uh, and that has also included uh, bomb-making materials uh, which he has sought to provide to others as part of his activities to uh, urge others to commit terrorist acts and and violence against community members.
1: New South Wales Assistant Commissioner Mark Walton says that he is accused the young man here, is accused of using neo-Nazi and white supremacist chat groups to basically encourage others to commit violence against certain groups.
2: Almost anyone that didn't look like him, but more specifically, it's, it's non-whites, it's immigrants, it's people of the Jewish and Islamic faith. Uh, you know, really, really that term, I hate everyone that, that doesn't fit my, uh, my identity.
0: Yeah, it's an abhorrent ideology. Um, they say the young man also posted about his willingness to be involved in what they called a mass casualty event and expressed support for the Christchurch shooter is expected to front court today.
1: Yeah, and look, the growing threat of white supremacy here in Australia, I think this is, it's a problem that ASIO has acknowledged is significant. 30 to 40% of ASIO's cases, so that's the Australian Security Intelligence Organisation... 30 to 40% of their cases come from extreme right-wingers. This is up from 12 to 15% before 2016, so more than double there.
0: Yeah, so previous to 2016, they're really focused on um, extreme Islamic ideology motivating terror attacks. And since uh, 2016, um, that balance is starting to shift.
1: What's interesting as well is that some of the heads of ASIO believe that the coronavirus pandemic has exacerbated the threat just because it's allowed people to be recruited um, a little bit easier online. People aren't leaving their house, they're using the internet a bit more. So there will be an inquiry into this, which I, I think is pertinent. Uh, that, that's going to happen over the course of the next few months and the findings will be handed down in April next year.
0: Another great reason to roll out this vaccine. <laughs> And speaking of, people with significant food or medical allergies are now being told not to get the Pfizer vaccine as the rollout continues in the UK.
1: So the country has issued um, this health advice basically as a precaution. Two health workers who already carry adrenaline pens suffered allergic reactions. What we understand is that both of them are recovering well.
0: It's a bit of a roller coaster ride, though, isn't it?
1: No, no, it's okay. Look, th- this is the sort of stuff that we expect. But I think because everybody is just we're all watching s- it. We're all watching it. We're all so nervous. We want to know every little detail. Here it is. It's nothing to be alarmed about at this point.
0: Yeah, so anyone scheduled to get the vaccine is being asked if they are allergic to any of its ingredients. Which
1: I think is par for the course. It makes I think a lot of sense. They should be asked that question. I'm glad they're being asked that question. And look, um, vaccines around the world are happening as well. Canada is set to get its first doses before the end of December. Germany is is saying that they're going to give first doses of the vaccine in the very first few days of 2021. Um Brazil, Brazil's got a very high number of coronavirus infections happening daily. They're going to get a vaccine january twenty fifth roundabout there. Russia's already started rolling out its Sputnik V vaccine, a few thousand. Um, and the FDA, which is in the United States, is looking into authorising an emergency use of the Pfizer vaccine as well. So things are happening. And back home, we are expected to announce that we could meet our Paris Agreement emission targets without using controversial carryover credits.
0: Yeah, so these carryover credits, you'll hear this thrown around in debates a lot about our emissions targets. Basically, what they are, um, they're emissions reductions we made under earlier agreements, uh, the Kyoto Agreements 1 and 2. So those targets span between 2008 and 2020. And we actually overachieved on those goals, so the government was going to include those extra emission reductions in their 2030 target, which would have made them a lot easier to achieve.
1: Yeah, this is a slightly controversial move. I know that big wigs in the UN um, climate space have called this or likened this to cheating, but, you know, it's it's technically not an illegal thing. Uh, Reports from the Coalition Party Room meeting on Tuesday of this week said that the government will walk back its long-held plans to use the credits in order to meet our target of 26 to 28% reduction on 2005 levels by 2030. It's an oddly specific target that we have, but that's the one that we're going with.
0: So the point is, yeah, if we used the credits, we would have only had to reduce those emissions by 16%. So it would have been way easier. But there's going to be data coming out today that shows we're pretty much on track to meet our 2030 targets Without using the credits.
1: Yes, that is the good news, I suppose. The slightly bad news here is that the UN has warned that temperatures are still on track to rise by what they call a catastrophic three degrees this century.
0: Yeah, and in this report, the UN singles out Australia, Brazil, Canada, Korea and the US as 5G20 countries whose efforts are falling short of what's needed to meet the Paris goal of keeping warming below two degrees. And a parliamentary report into Rio Tinto's destruction of one of the world's oldest rock shelters, the Jugan Gorge, says the mining giant should compensate traditional owners.
1: Now, although the destruction of it was technically legal, there was international outrage when the 46,000-year-old Western Australian caves were blown up to extract iron ore. This happened back in May and three, the company's senior executives resigned, including the CEO.
0: Yeah, and the Parliamentary Committee interim report describes Rio's role as inexcusable and notes that they knew the value of the sacred site and did it anyway.
1: Committee Chair Queensland MP Warren Ench told the ABC that the company should also pay to repair the six caves.
2: See what we can do about a restoration of it to the best they can. You're not going to recover number number two, the shelter, but the rest of them, there's a good chance that they can be restored. And so, you know, they blew them up. Now they can do what they can to repair
0: them. That was Warren Ench there. Uh, Jan, we'll catch you tomorrow in just a moment. We'll talk about the controversial film about the Port Arthur Massacre. Do you think we should make movies about the darkest chapters in human history? I mean, how many films about the Holocaust have you seen? Schindler's List, Inglorious Bastards, Downfall, Life is Beautiful... right now, a film's being made about one of Australia's darkest moments.
2: Good evening. All Australians tonight share the horror of the Port Arthur Massacre. 35 people are dead, 18 are injured.
0: It happened on the island of Tasmania. That's off
3: the southern coast of Australia. The historic penal settlement of Port Arthur was crowded with tourists and day-trippers.
0: The feature film about the '96 Port Arthur Massacre is in production right now. It's actually being made in Victoria. Uh, It's called Nitrum, which is Martin spelt backwards. It'll air on Stan and in cinemas next year. But a long list of Tasmanians don't want the film to go ahead. They're upset and they're angry. So in this briefing, you're going to find out why. And it gets very interesting because on the face of it, you might think, well, it's been 24 years and in Western civilization, we've always used art, including film, to examine the darkest chapters of human history, even if it is painful for the victims. So, of course, this film should be made. But as you're about to hear, it is about how you do it. And that's where this debate gets really interesting. Brian Mitchell is the federal Labor MP for the seat of Lyons, which includes Port Arthur. Brian, how are people in Port Arthur feeling about this film?
2: They don't want it to go ahead, Tom. They, they just want this uh, film to stop. They're quite nervous about it. Uh, they know that it'll uh, revisit a lot of trauma that they've been going through. So are you actively trying to stop this film getting made? that's my hope we've written to the producers and we've asked them with a very simple plea just stop production we know they've invested money in it we know they're halfway through their production or maybe even further um but they just shouldn't go ahead with it this was a bad idea from the start they should have consulted the local community come out to port arthur and yabana and spoken to people and they would have felt very much the the very strong feeling in that community about this sort of thing
0: so do you think there's no way a film can be made about this topic or that these producers have gone about it in the wrong way? Probably a bit of both.
2: We know it's been 24 years and people are going to talk about this and we have various anniversaries. We've we've had the 20th anniversary, we've got the 25th coming up next year. There are appropriate ways to deal with the matter and we don't think that turning a national tragedy into what is effectively entertainment for a streaming service is appropriate. The key thing here, Tom, is that for 24 years we've sought to minimise and anonymise the gunman uh, and we've put all our focus on the victims, the survivors and the community. Uh, and what this sort of project does is it makes the perpetrator the entire focus. It, In whatever light it tries to paint him, uh, however sensitive it tries to be to the topic, it can't help get away from the simple fact it makes him the focus and that has been entirely opposite to what we've been trying to achieve over the last 24 years
0: have the filmmakers gotten back to you is there a conversation happening between the local community and those filmmakers now
2: No, they haven't. And look, and to be fair to them, I've only got onto them in the last few days since all this has emerged. So the real problem here is they approached Screen Tasmania about two years ago. Screen Tasmania said they don't want to fund it. Now, I know the filmmakers think they're doing the right thing. They maybe think enough time has passed. They think this is a story that should be told. If they need to tell a story about Port Arthur, it should be focused on the victims and the families and the survivors, not on the perpetrator.
0: Brian Mitchell, local MP for Port Arthur, Now, this film is being made by Aussie director-writer combo Justin Kurzel and Sean Grant, who made Snowtown. And we asked them to come on the briefing, but no dice. From what they have said publicly, part of their justification is about shining a light on the gun laws that were brought in after the attack. Now, Tasmanian Liberal Senator Erica Betts was part of the Howard government that introduced those strict gun laws. And that was a politically difficult and widely applauded move. Erica Betts... You're part of the government that brought in those gun laws. So if this film gets a big audience, particularly in America where gun reform could save lives, could that be a good outcome?
4: The film I don't think is designed about gun control from what I can gather. What it's going to do is add to the notoriety and publicity for the murderer That's what he was, and that's what he seeks. And so that's why I find this film to be exceptionally disappointing. And if you want to make the case for gun control, which is, of course, a good cause, I think you can do it in a different manner.
0: Now, Eric, I raise this next point with a bit of trepidation because comparing anything to the Holocaust is very fraught, but millions of Jews were killed in the Holocaust, and we've seen hundreds, if not thousands, of films made about it and I guess the point there is that many people believe that there's a social good from learning about humanity's darkest chapters and that in many cases it's worth the trauma that might be revived for the victims by retelling, you know, the the story of the atrocity in question. Do you see that argument?
4: Look, one, I agree with you that it is exceptionally fraught to try to make comparisons with the Holocaust and uh, I'm not sure that's a useful analogy in all the circumstances, but as a general principle, the question is whether the film is designed to encourage people to think about an atrocity that should never be allowed to happen again or whether it provides some notoriety for the perpetrators and in this case with the port arthur film that is my concern that the perpetrator sought notoriety and any film made about port arthur will add to his uh, uh, desire uh, for notoriety and that will fulfill that desire so that's why i believe the film is not uh, worthy of production. But as I said before, we live in a free country. They're entitled to produce such a film, but I would encourage them to desist.
0: Do you see art as having an important role in our civilization to unpack our darkest chapters?
4: Look, uh, art and uh, writing, the teaching of history, all forms of... uh, engagement within society is helpful in that regard and, of course, art is part and parcel of that.
0: Including feature films?
4: including feature films. Look, it is like anything, public speeches are a good thing, but if you use them like Adolf Hitler did, it is for evil. If you do it like Martin Luther King did, it is for good. Same with films, same with books. The medium is not the issue. It is what you use the medium for and how you do it. uh, That is the issue at stake.
0: That's Liberal Senator Eric Betts. Let's find out more about the trauma that could be triggered by this film. Richard Bryant's the director of the Traumatic Stress Clinic at UNSW. And yes, I know what you're thinking. His last name is a very unfortunate coincidence in the case of this story. Anyway, let's get on with it. Richard, do you think this film should be made? I don't think the question
3: is, should it be made? I think the question is, um, how should it be made? From the perspective of of somebody who works with uh, psychological trauma, Making the film itself is not necessarily a bad thing. I think the thing that potentially concerns me is, is just how it's made.
0: Yeah, well, it seems the focus will be on the killer himself and, and the lead-up to the event, and it's going to look at why a mass shooting like this would happen and how gun control can prevent this kind of mass shooting. Is that a good justification, and, and do you think it can actually do that in this, this format of a, of a feature film?
3: Look, I think it can do it. My answer is the same. It's about how it's done. And what I would not want to see done and what could potentially be harmful or just excessively distressing for survivors is anything that tries to justify or in some way empathize or um, idolize his intentions, his actions, or what just led up to um, him being the sort of person that, that, that took those steps you know we're talking decades later and so people might ask the question well how long does one have to wait there are quite a few people around and it's not just the people who were there it's the people who lost loved ones and people who knew people who knew lost one loved ones they will all sort of be triggered by the betrayal of his actions or his personality and they just need to be sensitive. The, the producers need to be sensitive to how they construct that because it's, this is not just an entertainment piece. You know, this is going to have broader implications, as we've seen already by the, the reactions of people.
0: What will this film be like for those people that had any connection to the 35 people who were killed?
3: For many people this long afterwards, they will have adjusted to a large extent, we know this from people that have been through similar mass shootings and and other events in the past, people can be incredibly resilient. Let me also say that that can even be somewhat constructive in that if a person decades later is is still having these reactions, or if they're still stuck in their um, very, very painful grief because they've lost a loved one and they haven't been able to move on. We know people can do this uh, after losing a loved one, particularly under traumatic circumstances. Things like this can even trigger certain people to go and get uh, therapy that they could benefit from. and. I would encourage anybody who's still experiencing these symptoms, and even conversations like the one we're having right now and and the media talk about the prospect of the film being made, if that's really distressing people um, who are directly involved, one of my messages would be it's a great time to go and get help from somebody who really knows what they're doing, somebody who's expert in the evidence-based approaches to treating PTSD and grief um, to deal with these problems because we do have strategies to deal with them. In fact, we've got far better strategies now than we had at the time of the massacre. I guess one of the the points I'm making here is that as potentially harmful as this film may be, uh, there could actually be some good coming out of it as well.
0: That was Professor Richard Bryant from UNSW who specialises in PTSD. So there you go, this issue is much more complex than I first imagined. I mean, yes, we need to make films about the dark chapters of of humanity, but is focusing on the perpetrator the right thing to do when the community's been working so hard to minimise him? And could the filmmakers have engaged more with the local community? Or is the emotional distance what's needed to make this kind of story? You could also wonder whether an entertainment feature film is really the right way to explore this kind of story. But then on the other hand, if it's not entertaining, it won't reach a big audience. It might just stay in a small academic community. So, yeah, complex questions on, on this one. And I guess what's interesting in this case is we will get answers to some of those questions because at this stage, the film is going ahead. It's sure to generate a lot of attention and a lot of discussion. And it's hard to predict what harm or good might come from that. But these are the kind of freedoms we enjoy and often fight for in a democratic society that values freedom of expression. All right, tomorrow on The Briefing, we're going to explain what the Paris Agreement actually was. You're going to be hearing a lot about it in the news as the anniversary comes around, so we'll explain what they actually agreed to. A
1: Podcast One production.